Welcome to Real Talk with Life After Grief, Chris, where we talk about relevant issues as it relates to individuals in grief as they navigate finances and the advisors who help them. We help clients in grief navigate financial matters. We also teach advisors how to emotionally and financially work with clients in grief through an unparalleled process. This week's episode is sponsored by Life After Grief Financial Planning and Life After Grief Consulting. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Real Talk with Life After Grief, Chris. On today's episode, I have a repeat offender. I mean, a um, good buddy of mine who's been on the podcast before, uh, Daniel Kopp, recent dad. He looks a little bit exhausted. I can see him today, even though you all can only hear him. I've received some feedback on previous episodes that folks really want to hear the experience of someone who has lost a spouse and who has thrived in life after grief on the other side. So my buddy Daniel has really thrived and uh, I wanted to kind of pick his brain and he was very willing to do so on today's podcast. And uh, Daniel, thanks for coming back, buddy. I appreciate you. Oh, Chris, always happy to come and have a conversation with you and um, trust that what we talk about today will be another help to your listeners. I would agree. And Daniel, obviously his experience trumps mine because I have no experience in this space specifically. So I am really going to kind of read down some questions that have come from listeners and I'm going to let Daniel, you know, kind of get after it. If that's okay with you, buddy. Yeah, let's go. All right. So one of the questions that was asked in regards to, you know, losing a spouse was how do you handle dating and or moving forward after losing a spouse? Mm, yeah, that's a a deep question there. We'll see how far we go down that road. Quick context to catch listeners up to speed who may not have heard my story in the previous episode. So I was married to Sarah. We got married in 2012. She got really sick in 2016, became her full-time caregiver. 2017, lived in hospitals most of the year, came to hospice for about the last four or five, six weeks, and then she died in August of 2017. So a little bit of an extended timeline for my grief with a lot of anticipatory knowing what was coming. Ultimately, in that new stage of grief and trying to figure out what was next, I had the benefit of some deep conversations with Sarah in that last time that we had together. And one of the things that we talked about and she encouraged me to do was when I was ready, when she, you know, she encouraged me to remarry. So I at least had that blessing. Not all people have that in this space. And I will also say as a man, this is something that is very uh, gender specific. Men and women move forward at their own individual pace in this. So some caveats out of the way there. So as I started to go through grief and in early 2018, I got out of the military, which was my previous job, and I was going to go on a sabbatical and take some time off. That really gave me some time to step away from the fog of life, the fog of work, still working through the fog of grief as a part of that and figuring out what was next. Um, A lot of time for spiritual study, meditation, a lot of journaling that I did, but also deep conversation with people that knew, loved, and cared about me. So one of those things that I started asking people within those circles was what they thought about this idea. You know, And I'm talking very intimate, like my best friend, 
my mom and my dad and one of my siblings, you know, a very tight, small circle. I know the people that weren't going to sit there and judge other people be very mindful of this can get very, very, very judgy about this idea of moving on or what they consider that. Of course, we as grievers know that there's no such thing as moving on from grief. It's a part of it. So in that stage, I started thinking about what this next spouse, what I would like that to look like, what I'd like the dating relationship to be. I had met Sarah on eHarmony before, so I tried online dating. It worked. (laughs) But I knew Mm -hmm. that I didn't want to go down that road again. I didn't want to have to explain a lot of things. (laughs) I just was not in a place to be able to do that. So Late spring of 2018, so a little bit later on, I ultimately ended up asking my cousins if they knew somebody that they thought might be a good connection. My prayer kind of life had led me to that, trusting them and knowing that they knew a lot of people that were in our circles that had known our story. And turns out my cousin Caitlin replied and said, well, basically, hey, yeah, we've actually been thinking and talking and praying about this and we resolved we would never say anything but if you asked we do have somebody we'd like to introduce you to that ended up being anna oh wow yeah yeah this this story gets pretty deep a pretty very cool god story so anyway she connected us we started writing back and forth via email at first then we switched over to texting In God's providence, I was planning to take that long trip around the country and stay in New England visiting some other friends for about five, six weeks. Anna at the time was living in Boston, so very, very far away from where I was prior to that in Idaho. And so it was only a few months away, so we talked on the phone, messaged back and forth, and just really kept it very light, casual. I went in letting her know this expectation. We're just getting to know each other as friends. Let's wait until we meet in person before we take this into a dating relationship or anything like that. So trying to set some pretty clear expectations. Backing up a little bit, one of the reasons why I think it was helpful in this early stage is because Anna had watched from a distance as things got shared on Facebook, elsewhere, and had basically seen my story. So I didn't have to come in and explain a lot of things. She had grown up with my uh, people in my circles. In fact, (laughs) this is how small the world is. Anna's brother, Ryan, had introduced my brother, Stephen, to his wife, Jess, actually when they first started dating. So camps, you know, colleges, all this kind of stuff. So a lot of similarities, parallels. So by the time that we finally ended up meeting later on that summer, started to get to know one another in person, it was pretty clear within the first four or five weeks that as we started dating, that this was going to be something serious. And sure enough, we took it to that level, ended up getting engaged at the, that fall and then married in November of 2018. So we went pretty fast, but both of us were in our mid thirties at that point in time, we knew what we wanted and we'd brought in from the beginning, her parents, other people within our small circle as accountability. So that's the short version. There's a much longer version, I'm sure, of that story. But that's kind of what the process was like for me. So big keys for me, looking back. One, I had a small circle of people that loved, cared, and trusted me, and I trusted them, that I could bring in as accountability partners. Grief can make people do some funny things, especially in you know romantic attachment. So having their support, their accountability, their ability to say, hey, Daniel, this is looking good, or no, this is not looking good, right? And then I had a prearranged contract with them about that kind of stuff. Two, like going to people that I knew and trusted for an introduction rather than kind of just trying to look for anyone and everyone. And then with that, like going in stages, so starting slow, 
setting clear expectations from the beginning, what the relationship would look like and going from there. So those are things that I drew from my principles that hopefully other people could look to for inspiration. Well, I'm listening to you kind of tell your story. And one of the things that really sticks out is how much reflection you did. And I think this is going to lead into kind of, you know, the next next question that I'm going to ask you. But I mean, you did a ton of reflection, um, a ton of growing on your own, and you had to get yourself right, so to speak, for the next phase of life. So you could be in a situation where you could give to someone else. Mm, that's a, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. You and I both know if you are empty and, you know, you have a romantic attachment, it's not going to be fully genuine and you could have some, you know, definitive holes and some de- definitive pitfalls. Me being married 18 years and looking back at some of the things that you have done, you know, to grow yourself into, you know, your marriage, you know, it's even inspiring for me you know, kind of looking back, because you did so much reflection. And, you know, when you mentioned, you said you guys moved fast. Well, fast is relative. And (laughs) it may take you a long time. As I was an immature young male, it took me a long time to mature to get to the point where I could get married. And so Anne-Marie and I had a long courtship, and it took a long time, but I had to do a, a tremendous amount of growing. And so if I was at the place that you were, uh, I probably wouldn't have waited so long. No, I, I commend you, f- you know, for that. And like I said, it's, it is a true inspiration to kind of see that. I see you guys being married forever, you know, based on, you know, what you said in the close, um, the close knit circle and the family ties are so huge. Mm, um, that makes yeah. a huge difference in regards to you having a strong support system. And you had mentioned accountability partners. Yeah. And I recognize that certainly not everybody is going to have that but if it maybe it's not family, who else in your life could fill that role as someone who loves and cares and trusts you and you love and care and trust them too? Sure. Totally agree. You know, you kind of touched on this, but you know, you were learning to grow your own identity mm, uh, during yeah. that process. And that's, you know, one of the other questions that was asked of some folks, some listeners. So can you just touch on that a little you know, a little bit more? You you did a really good job, but I want to be specific about that aspect. Yeah, that was I mean a huge part of this journey of self-reflection for me and I'm sure listeners can relate who are also in a caregiver role. So suddenly I had all this free time. I was working full-time before and every time I wasn't working, I was full-time caregiving. And at the end, it was 100%, 24-7, full-time caregiving. So suddenly, that stops. And it was very unsettling at first. What do I do now? I have all this time. I haven't had this time for a long, long time. So being able to step back, all right, fill that with other things that were outward focusing for me was big help. Because if I sat there and just felt sorry for myself in a pity party and like, woe is me. You know, that that led to a dark path. I had dealt with some pretty serious, in retrospect, depression in that role as caregiver. And so now sure. realizing I needed to move forward and beyond that. And certainly the spiritual journey goes along with that. So in this new role, what was that going to look like? So I started working a little bit more. I started looking opportunities to volunteer I looked opportunities to serve others. And then 
in my case, also had a dog at the time. So, you know, finding ways to get out, to get out more physical activity. So started working out a lot more at that time frame. And then as I get set for career transition and then travel, you know, that ended up bringing me into contact with a lot of friends, family across the country that I hadn't seen much in the years prior. So more outward focusing activities allowed me to avoid more of the pity party than I might have otherwise sat there and done. As I set for this new career path, you know, we've talked about that before. Um, Chris is a career changer, becoming a financial planner. There was a lot of opportunities for me to study, to prepare, to grow, to network. I probably talked to over over 100 professionals in that space. So just a lot of networking. Um, And all of this little by little, block by block, started to build the next chapter. Now, the transition certainly brought with it a lot of challenges, um, both in the dating relationship that I talked about before, but also in the career. But each one of these, again, I am very thankful. I was blessed to be able to have had these conversations with Sarah ahead of time. So at that stage, it was not so new. Um, So I felt like I had her explicit blessing to move forward. For those who may not have that, I work with clients who have this conversation. What would my spouse want me to do? Well, think about who they were, how they loved you, what they loved in you. What would they say if you were if they were there together to tell you, yes, go forward in this way? Um, you know, and that's something I found helpful in talking with other people as well. Even if not every conversation, Sarah and I certainly didn't have everyone. Like, what would she have wanted me to do? What did she love about me? What did would she have said if she was there? And oftentimes those things were able to help keep me motivated and moving forward. That's awesome. And yeah, I'm 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 really proud of you for, you know learning, you know, to grow your own identity. Cause it, for you, it completely changed. You were one person, then you were another person, and then you had to develop who you were all over again. And you did that, you know, tr- with tremendous talent and you are an inspiration, you know, to a lot of folks and you do some good work for a lot of good folks, you know, too. So I want to say one thing to that too, because like this idea of, yes, I am a very different person than who I was before. The Daniel of the past was definitely more logical oriented, emotionally shallow in some ways and lacking in empathy. (laughs) I don't know a nicer way to put it. The grief experience, the caregiving experience stretched me, broke me in so many ways so that when I emerged on the other side, it was as if suddenly I had this reserve of empathy that I never had before. The the ability to go through deep sorrow impacted my ability to love more deeply on the other side than any before. I'm no longer as logical as I once was. I've lost some brain capacity. Like I can't memorize in the same way I used to. It's strange. Um, the brain underwent some changes in addition to my identity and this new person. So that can be a loss, but I've looked at it as a gain right now. I can use these things. So everybody's going to go through their own different journey, but that's something I found. I'm simplistic. I call that putting hair on your chest. (laughs) Also known as maturity. Yes. Some different maturity. No different uh, than here. Cause I was, you said, you said lacking in empathy. I'd say before I was pretty self-centered. I could go through a number of things. And you talk about stretching you. And uh, I'm a pretty patient person now. Before, I wasn't that patient. And there are things that just bounce off. Yeah. And I, you know, became a a, a different animal, so to speak, you know, after, before and after. 
And so yeah. it, it really humbles you. It, it absolutely humbles you. Um, I got like one or two questions for you. Last one, this is kind of some ebbs and flows of grief. And so is it okay not to be okay in your eyes? And you know, what does that mean to you, Daniel? It's a title of an excellent book by Megan Devine. In fact, it's okay to not be okay in written in this space of grief. The grief is rightly called a roller coaster. There are good days. There are bad days. One of my favorite questions to ask fellow grievers is how is your grief today? It implies there's differences. There's so many triggers that go on. So for me, learning how not to be okay was, especially early on in the stage of grief, was to almost literally on my calendar or in the time of the day, the planning, like I'm going to be sad and I'm going to block out time to be sad. <laughs> That's probably an overly simplistic view, but I knew right. the grief had to have an outlet. I could not tamp it down. And so for me, I needed to give space for that. And then within my circles of people, there were those that got that and our relationships deepened. And there were those that didn't. And those relationships frayed a bit, for better or worse. So for me, learning now not to be okay and, and just being okay with that was setting aside that time to grieve and um, leaning into those relationships that drew closer to me in my grief. And then lastly, the part of that, you know, that journaling I mentioned earlier, like finding an outlet to express what I was feeling. Also getting connected with fellow widows and widowers. So some Facebook groups, some grief groups, talking to a grief counselor, like people who were not in that friend family circle that I didn't have to burden with the constant same old story sure. of how I was doing. And those provided some really great outlets for me. Yeah, I would 100% agree. I'm thinking of some ebbs and flows that, you know, I've gone through, you know, over time and understanding that th there are going to be times where you're going to have an absolutely outstanding day, hour, minute, second. And then there are other times that it's just going to simply suck and mm -hmm. you're just waiting to get to the next minute, hour or second. So this kind of episode passes. Um, that's, you know, my um, priest said that to me, you, you know, when you're in the throes of grief, sometimes you have to look at it as an episode yeah. and the episode will pass and you'll be on to kind of the next uh, time frame. And I thought that was kind of, it was so well put. And I was like, well, it gives me something as a griever to look forward to. Mm. It absolutely helped. And some of the things that you had talked about, like journaling and a lot of self-reflection uh, helps out, you know, tremendously and, you know, kind of, you know, getting through some of that experience, if you will, yeah. with grief. So, and it's, it's okay to have a bad day or it's, it's okay to, you know, say to someone, I'm not ready to do this, or I'm not ready to do that. Or, um, yeah. I just don't feel like coming out today. Um, yeah. all of those things are okay. And you gotta, one of the other things that I've kind of found is you gotta have some thick skin. And as you had mentioned that when you do things or make decisions as a griever, some people have negative opinions of what you are doing. And I imagine that that is heightened in the situation when you have had a spouse that has passed away and then you as the person who is surviving, uh, you know, you're learning how to move forward on mm. your own. Yeah. That's a title of another book. And so moving forward on your own, you know, that's, it, it makes the grief harder. Uh, it definitely makes it, the grief harder. 
So, Daniel, I got one more question for you, and it ties into your traveling. You know, you're yeah. deciding to travel, you know, all over. And so, <laughs> yes. can you just, you know, touch about, touch on traveling on your own? Yeah. So before this experience, I would never have thought about doing that. I just thought, well, <laughs> one of the things we've changed me, I stopped caring what strangers thought. <laughs> 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 I care about what people who love me care about me, trust, you know, in that circle, right? I care about what they think, but I don't care about anybody else for better or worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> so traveling, my, my limitation on traveling alone was always, oh, what will people think? Oh, I'm out there. I'm going to a restaurant alone. Ah, you know, so I just tried it and I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. I tried it a little bit more. Oh, this isn't so bad after all, right? And and finding ways to bridge that gap. Now, uh, you know, maybe I didn't wouldn't go to the busiest restaurant at the busiest time of day, you know, but I'd get a table and you know listen to a podcast or read a book or read a, or just sit there and enjoy people watching, right? Finding ways to do that and also just learning how to appreciate. I went to a lot of national parks in my big RV trip for eight months across the country, sitting in awe and wonder of nature. That was all another powerful part of my healing in this to help myself feel small in light of the grandeur of the beauty around me. And in my case, looking to God as the creator of that, you know, helping me have a deeper appreciation and perspective. So traveling alone is scary if you've never done it before. So the first thing, take a small step, right? Do one little thing alone and then try a little bit more and then try a little bit more. Now, you don't have to, right? You can get together with other friends or other grievers, many other people who want to travel. But for me, once I got over my initial fear, oh, it's not so bad, and I stopped caring about what strangers thought, it was great. Yeah, that's awesome. While you were talking about traveling on your own, you know, kind of my journey, uh, I kind of locked up and didn't travel and I didn't do things that were um, by myself. It was either always with someone else. It was with my wife. And, you know, after my experience, I started traveling and with the support of Anne-Marie and my traveling on my own was to go and visit friends, you know, by myself. And you talk about not caring what other people think. I have a very vivid story for you. Uh, yeah. I just don't, at this point, I just don't care what other people think, good, bad, or indifferent. I went to go travel a buddy, uh, go visit a buddy of mine. And you talk about nature in um, Montana and beautiful country up there. I had no idea. We were in between, I don't know, two or three states. He just drove around. But I got there and I took this purple, bright purple suitcase with me. And my friend up there, he's a manly man. <laughs> so I have this bright purple suitcase. You know, at the time, I don't like to talk too much about kind of politics and things of that nature, but things uh, with a man being portrayed as feminine was not really accepted um, up there. And especially a man with a bright purple suitcase traveling with another man and we sleeping in the same hotel room because we were traveling between cities and he was taking me to explore different things and national parks, Yellowstone. And the first thing that my buddy said, he's like, we cannot take that purple suitcase with us because (laughs) of what people are going to think of us. And I said, Don, I don't care. Yeah. I said, I don't care. It was the first thing, you know, that I pulled out of my, my closet. And so Anne Marie said something about it. She's like, 
what do you think? What do you think he's going to think about that purple suitcase? And I said, I don't care what he thinks. He's known me a long time. And the first thing we got off the plane, he was walking at a good distance away from me when he saw the purple suitcase. <laughs> and I oh, said, what's man. wrong? He said, man, it's that suitcase. And he just, he, he quickly throws it in the back of his vehicle. And then when we get back to his house, <laughs> he may, he dumps out all my clothes and my stuff. And he's like, put it in this suitcase. This is my, my wife's, <laughs> um, I think it was a, a, like a black suitcase or something. And I was like, all right, man, I gotcha. So, Daniel, I appreciate you, man. I want to give you another opportunity to brag about, you know, what you do, the name of your firm, how you can be reached, all that good stuff. Well, I'm still doing financial planning at Wise Stewardship Financial Planning, but update from the last time we talked, I'm doing a lot more of the financial therapy work now. So really kind of now specializing more in working with widows in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who are planning with children in the picture, who are stepping into the role as the household financial manager for the first time and dealing with the financial anxiety that comes with that, oftentimes related to the money story that we all have that goes around this idea of money avoidance, like money is bad. So helping to work through that side of it. Um, Also doing a lot of writing and speaking. And so getting a chance to do that, hopefully get to see you at a couple conferences later this year, Chris. It's a privilege to come on here and love your podcast. Love the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me on. No, I appreciate you more than you know. So you're an inspiration to me. And without further ado, I want to say thank you again to Daniel Kopp for uh, being on the podcast and uh, listeners for the feedback to kind of get to this point where I could you know, pick the brain of an expert based on his experience and what he does professionally. And I'd encourage you, if you you know appreciate and like the podcast, uh, please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Thanks, and see you in the next episode. for listening to our podcast. If you are a client and are looking to work directly with me, Chris, and or my firm, head on over to Life After Grief FP. That is Life After Grief FP. The FP is for financial planning.com. If you are an advisor looking to emotionally and financially work with your client in grief, or if you are a client looking to get your advisor's head in the game, head on over to lifeaftergriefconsulting.com. That is lifeaftergriefconsulting.com. Any information referenced in this week's podcast will be located here in the podcast section. And as always, please feel free to share this week's podcast with any friend, family member, or colleague. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the next episode.